the town of tribulation and straight on to Daring Do, chapters 12 and 13. A light breeze filled the sails as we locked out of the old harbour on Saturday morning. Alex O'Connell soon proved that he had the same salt water running through his veins as that of his great-uncle as we tacked back and forth while Grandma plotted our course. In less than three hours we had reached Portishead and locked in. The marina was full of colour and noise. Boats were decked out in signal flags and a jazz band was playing happy summer music on a small stage. Our berth was near to the square where all the activity seemed to be and Grandma commented how lucky we had been to be given such an excellent spot. I thought I saw her wink at Alex as she said this, but it might have been that the sun was in her eyes. As we stepped ashore, I spotted Ma and Aunt Hattie. It seemed that they had been lucky too, as they had managed to get a table very near to the stage. When Dottie had been strapped into small dog and her leash attached, we made our way to their table. We'd been sitting down for no more than five minutes when a man approached our table and asked if someone called Bob was with us. There's a call for you in the harbour master's office, he said, and asked if Bob could go there as quickly as possible. Bob looked worried, so I offered to go with him. The office was on the first floor of a large glass-fronted building that overlooked the lock. I hope nothing's happened to Mum, he said, as he bounded up the stairs two at a time, and I attempted to keep up with him. The harbour master beckoned for us to join him at a glass window, from where he oversaw movements in and out of the lock far below. Just in time, he said, and right on cue we heard the radio crackle and a voice say, Portishead Marina, this is the yacht Morning Star requesting lock-in. Bob swallowed hard, barely able to believe his ears. He tentatively peered down into the narrow passage that led to the lock. He listened again as he heard the harbour master give permission for the yacht to proceed and watched as the signal lights turned green, white and green. And then a familiar boat came into view. The morning star rounded the pier and made her way down the narrow channel towards the entrance. By now, Bob had raced out of the office, down the stairs, and was standing at the top of the lock gates. As I reached his side, I could see that the tall figure of a man was standing at the bow, mooring lines coiled in his hand. I recognised Bob's mother at the stern. But the greatest surprise was the figure at the helm. He raised his Breton cap in salute, giving the breeze the opportunity to ruffle his white whiskers as he called up to me, Ahoy, granddaughter! After the boat had passed through the lock, Bob and I ran ahead until the morning star reached her mooring. As we were tying up, I heard Bob ask his father, Are you back? For good, said his father explaining that he had missed his family too much to stay away any longer. Bob hugged his father and mother, and then we made our way back to the square, where my family was waiting. Extra chairs were placed around our table, and we made a happy, friendly group enjoying the afternoon sun. After a while, the band stopped playing, and a number of chairs were placed on the stage. 
a man stepped up to the microphone and welcomed everyone to this special event. He introduced the first guest as Mrs Tranter, the head of Tourism Southwest, and a smartly dressed woman came to the front of the stage. Each year, began Mrs Tranter, it is my pleasant duty to present an award to the individual who has brought the greatest number of visitors to any tourist attraction in our region. This year there was a clear winner. She paused and turned towards our table. I would like to ask Dottie the Swimming Cat to come forward and receive her award. Grandma carefully lifted the little cat, who was dozing peacefully on a chair, and carried her towards the stage. She placed her on a small table that had been put there for that purpose. The audience clapped loudly and several people got to their feet and shouted, Bravo! as Mrs Tranter hung a gold medal around Dottie's neck and the cat gave a loud chirp, which brought more cheers and a good deal of laughter from the audience. The woman smiled and said, I didn't expect a speech from our winner, but it goes to prove what a great asset Dottie is to the old harbour. As the cameras captured the presentation, the cat sat upright, tilting her regal nose slightly so that her subjects would know that she was in charge. Just like, I started to say to Bob, the Queen of Sheba, he completed the sentence. Grandma and Dottie returned to their seats as the man stepped forward again, thanked Mrs Tranter and announced that the next guest was the Chief Constable. A tall man in uniform came to the microphone. The job of the police force is made difficult by criminals, he began, but occasionally a member of the public comes forward to assist us in catching a wrongdoer. In this case, three members of the public became detectives and helped us to track down a thief who has since been arrested, he said. Something that is of little worth to a thief can be of great importance to its owner. It can have a personal value and can never be replaced. For this reason, before making the presentation, I would like to ask Miss Eleanor Danvers to say a few words. I had not noticed the Danvers sitting at the back of the stage, but now she appeared carrying a small red cushion, which she placed on the table before beginning to speak. When my boat was broken into, two things were stolen that, as the chief constable has said, had a special value to me. The thief took a barometer and some binoculars that had been given to me by my father. I thought that they would be lost forever, and they would have been if it had not been for the actions of three people. She paused and looked across at our table, two of whom are wonderful role models for young people. As she read out our names, Grandma, Bob and I went to the stage to receive our Good Citizen Awards from the Chief Constable. He shook our hands as he presented a scroll and a medal to each of us in turn. Grandma made a little speech, saying that it was the duty of each and every citizen to do what they knew to be right, and then we returned to our table. Finally, said the man, I would like to call on Cox and Andrew Lawrence to make our final presentation. I'd last seen the coxswain two days earlier, when he had shaken Billio's hand and congratulated him on his seamanship. But now the dry suit, life jacket and wellingtons had been replaced by a smart navy blue jacket with two rows of brass buttons down the front and a white-topped hat. 
I wonder how many of us would put to sea in an attempt to save lives, especially on a tricky stretch of water in darkness, he began. Well, that's exactly what one group of people did earlier this week. He went on to tell the story of the rescue of the crew of the IT's mine and then said, I would like to present this award for bravery and exceptional seamanship to Captain William O'Donnell, Royal Navy retired, and to his crew. He called out our names and we went onto the stage again. I know how a yo-yo feels, said Grandma, as she got up from her seat again, but I could tell that she was overjoyed to be the centre of so much attention. After the presentation, we posed as a group so that photographs could be taken. From the stage, I looked at Ma and Aunt Hattie, who were wiping tears of happiness from their eyes. I looked at Bob's mother and father, who were glowing with pride. I looked at Billio, full of dignity and self-respect. And I looked at Dottie, who had fallen asleep again. I could not remember a time when I'd been so happy and tried to put the fact that I would soon have to return home out of my head. As the sun was setting, Ma and Aunt Hattie said that they must leave soon as they were not staying on a boat and had a long journey home. Then you'd better tell her now, prompted Grandma. Very well, said Ma. Grandma has suggested that instead of coming home for the last two weeks before the new term begins, I come and stay with her. After all, I haven't had a holiday this year. I don't know how you feel about it and I'll understand if you don't want to... She never got to finish the sentence because I jumped up and hugged her so tightly that she could hardly breathe. This was the perfect end to the day. The afternoon had been filled with music and games and we went off to our beds tired but happy. I was almost asleep when I heard the cabin door open and through half-closed eyes saw Grandma creep in. For a moment she stood in front of the photograph of the captain before carefully hanging her medals above the picture frame. She gave a satisfied nod and whispered, Well, Andrew, wasn't that the cat's pyjamas? Before returning to her cabin. Chapter 13 At twenty to nine on the first Tuesday of September, Ma and I set out on the short walk from home to school. She was wearing a delicate floral dress and had piled her hair into a neat bun on the top of her head. When I told her how lovely she looked, she gave my hair a final brush, straightened my tie and said that I didn't look too bad myself. What are all these people doing outside the school gate? I asked when we arrived. A large crowd had gathered on the pavement. Everyone was peering over each other's shoulders as they struggled to see what was happening in the playground. Probably new parents waving goodbye to their little ones, she said. She's here! A loud whisper went through the crowd as someone recognised me. People started to shuffle aside, clearing a pathway down which we were able to walk into the school grounds. Ahead of us, I could see the head teacher standing next to the man from Breakfast Television who'd signed my book at the festival. I puzzled for a moment about what I could have done to attract so much attention. I hadn't been involved with any more swimming cats. I hadn't helped to catch any more thieves and I definitely hadn't rescued any more shipwrecked sailors. Then I saw Ian Tompkins, the captain of the IT's mine. 
He was telling the man from Breakfast Television that he'd wanted to thank the people who had saved him, and as his company specialised in information technology, this seemed to be a good way of doing it. The interviewer turned to the head teacher next, who said that the gift would make a tremendous difference to her pupils. I was aware of a camera following me as the man from Breakfast Television beckoned to me to come and stand next to him. Well, the young lady in question has joined us just in time for the unveiling, he said. But first, perhaps you would like to tell us a little about the rescue. Remembering what I had written in my log, I gave a good account of the events of that evening. Occasionally, he would interrupt my story with questions such as, Were you frightened? And would you do it again? Which I answered as honestly as I could before returning to my story. As I finished, he turned to the camera and said, Join us again after the weather forecast, when we will see exactly how Megan's bravery has been rewarded. There was a flurry of activity as the cameras were moved to the far end of the playground, where a large blue curtain had been hung over the door of what had been the PE store. A few minutes later, the interviewer turned to the camera and said, Welcome back. Before the break, we heard how Megan Waterfield, a ten-year-old girl, took part in a daring rescue at sea. Now Mr Ian Tompkins, the man she rescued, would like to invite her to unveil his special gift to her school. Mr Tompkins made a short speech about how grateful he was for the way in which I'd helped him and handed me the end of a long cord that was attached to the top of the curtain, inviting me to pull it. As the curtains parted, a gasp went up from the crowd, followed by a round of applause. Above the freshly painted door, a sign read, The Megan Waterfield Information Technology Suite. On cue, the doors were opened by two members of staff who'd been waiting inside. The old store had been freshly painted and fitted out with new workstations, banks of computers and a trolley containing laptops and tablets. The head teacher thanked Mr Tompkins on behalf of the school and the interview came to an end. The man from Breakfast Television said that he was now going to Bob's school where the same generous gift had been made. But as Bob did not want a fuss to be made, they were just going to interview the head teacher. Teenagers, he said, as he left, and for a moment it reminded me of Miss Danvers and how she used to be. When the camera crew had left, the playground returned to normal, except for the fact that no one told me about their holidays this year, as they all wanted to hear about mine. At ten o'clock, in the middle of our English lesson, the classroom door was opened and Monty Moira came in with the school secretary, who explained that Moira's plane had been delayed. She'd not arrived back from Barbados until after midnight, so her parents had allowed her to sleep late. "'Take a seat next to Megan,' said the teacher. "'She'll explain what to do. You have some catching up to do.' As soon as Moira sat down, she was keen to show me her tan. After she had whispered about the people she'd met, the clothes she had bought, and how dreadful the flight home had been, she asked, And what did you do this year? I paused for a moment and said, Oh, nothing much. But I did go past the town of tribulation and straight on to Daring Do. If you have enjoyed listening to this story and would like to find out more about the Salty Sea Cat and her adventures, please go to our website 
Just Google Hilary Orme author and you'll find us there. <music>